Welcome to the On the Right Path podcast. I'm Brett Gunn, your host of the show. Today we continue with our Pete Knoll series as we speak to Bill McClintock, one of Pete's former players at the University of California, Berkeley. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Bill, it's great to have you on the uh, podcast today. I, I wanted to jump right into things and ask you if you could just t- talk about your early memories of, of Pete Noel, just how you crossed paths kind of with him for the first time. And, and, and uh, ultimately, how did you make your way from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, out to play for him at, at uh, University of Cal Berkeley? My first encounters with Pete Noel were very brief. Uh, after I flew out from Milwaukee on a DC-8, which took about six hours because there were no jet planes in those days, I had breakfast with Pete and Rennie Herarius, his number one assistant, and they put me on a Greyhound bus to Monterey, uh, wanted to make sure I had my schedule of classes ready for MPC. But I wound up at Cal, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Uh, first of all, I was cut from the freshman team in high school. <laughs> and uh, in 1954, I was quite successful. I, I made all city. That was my graduation year from high school and averaged about 25 points and 12 rebounds a game. I contacted the University of Wisconsin and Marquette University inquiring about the possibility of getting a scholarship or financial aid. And I was told by the Marquette University assistant coach in charge of recruiting that I would never play basketball on a major college D1 team. And so (laughs) at that time, I talked to a couple of my ex-teammates from West Division High School and also some opponents from North. And there was a large corporation down near my house, the Falk Corporation, and they had a basketball team. And so I signed up for an apprenticeship, uh, a three-year apprenticeship at the Falk Corporation. They had a basketball team. Uh, I also played CYO basketball, and during the summers, one guy had an old jalopy, and five of us would get in the car, and we'd drive out to the north side of Milwaukee to Franklin Square or downtown to Walter Allen. Both of these were outdoor asphalt courts, and uh, we'd, we'd play all the basketball we could. Uh, just a little message to the young boys and girls. Uh, Never let anyone discourage you from your goals in life, uh, because uh, if I'd have taken the word of these people, uh, I'd have never made it to college. So, uh, that's great. That's great. And, and, and what what do you remember? I mean, just as far as, I mean, just the the first uh, interaction with you know with Pete Newell. Obviously, the legend grew as his career went on. But here here it is. You're you're meeting him as a as a, as you know, in your, in your twenties, you know, what, what was kind of just the first, your, your first recollection of, of Pete Newell? Well, let me go back to one for just a second. Paul Schramka had played baseball for Pete Newell at the university of San Francisco where Pete coached basketball and baseball in the forties. And he had seen me play CYO basketball. So he led sent a letter to Pete Newell, unbeknownst to me, just wow. saying that I, I uh, might be a, a diamond in the rough and uh, he ought to consider, you know, having a, me come out to Cal. And so 
I got a letter from Pete and thought my, my drafting apprenticeship was ending in, in August of 1957. So I thought, I think I'd like to go to college. No one in my family ever had, but the dream of playing college basketball was so great that uh, I responded. And I met Pete, like I said, just briefly that morning. For, we had breakfast and I was on my way. Then he spoke at our banquet after my freshman year at Monterey Peninsula College. And uh, so did Phil Vukisovic, or Phil uh, Wilbert, who coached uh, USF with Bill Russell and Casey Jones. And, right. and once again, just a brief encounter with uh, Pete Newell and my college coach, MPC coach, uh, Pete Paletta. And then the only other time I met him was uh, we played the Cal Frosh during that season at MPC. Right. And uh, we were one of maybe the only junior college team to beat the Cal Frosh and so uh, once again talked to him briefly and back to Monterey so I showed up in September of 1957 and we immediately went into a classroom and he had a bunch of things outlined on the chalkboard before we ever got out on the court. Wow. That's great. So now, now you get to Cal, and, and I was curious if you could talk about just your, your uh, becoming one of only two sophomores to ever, to ever, start, to ever start for Pete. Right. Pete. Pete Newell rarely started sophomores. Uh, uh, seniors had to be beaten out, so any senior or junior uh, who had played the year before would would be guys that I'd have to beat out to even get on the court. And one of my problems was that Pete taught inside pivot foot. And I had been playing basketball for 12 years with permanent pivot foot. And of course, basketball was a game of habit. So needless to say, you could start practice on October 15th in those days, nothing before, no individual workouts or anything. And the games usually started about December 1st. So I had about six weeks to try and unlearn <laughs> a permanent pivot foot and learn an inside pivot foot. And these were all live. So we're going one-on-one, -on -one and I've got all these guys ahead of me. And uh, it seemed like every, every day, five days a week, we'd go 20 to 30 minutes one-on-one -on -one from the forward spot because Pete did all breakdown drills, one-on-one, -on -one, two two-on-two, three-on-three before we ever got five-on-five. Five. So it seemed like every, it seemed to me like four of the five days we were on the right-hand side of the court where, of course, I did not know how to do the inside pivot foot. So Pete always stressed that, and this is especially for the young players, that in a high school game of 32 minutes, if you're on defense half the time, you don't have the ball. So now you've got 16 minutes with the ball in your hands. So if there's five starters on the court, five into 16 goes three times, that means you might have the ball in your hand three or four or five minutes at the most. So you better learn how to play with your feet and to play without the ball read the defense and use a counter move. And 
we were only allowed one or two dribbles to get to the basket or get a shot off. So uh, needless to say, uh, it was a trial by error for me. And I, I think we were about five and four and we had lost to Stanford on Friday night and he inserted me in the starting lineup at Berkeley the next night. And we went on to win our next 16 games, including the <laughs> final four. So uh, it was worth all the hard work. And that's the message. There are no shortcuts. That's great. So here it is. You, you mentioned, um, you know, you're being told at, at one point you're never going to play at, at a high level. And, and, and here it is now. You're, you're a sophomore and you're playing in the final four against Oscar Robertson and, and Jerry West. I mean, can, can you just talk about that at all? Okay. In those days, as you know, uh, they played the final four on Friday and Saturday. There was no game in between. So, and there was no video or we didn't exchange game films because they used 16 millimeter film in that, in, in those days, <laughs> which that thing was about a one foot diameter, a big metal, uh, cylinder that the, the 60 millimeter film uh, right. rolled around. So Pete had the foresight. He sent Rennie Herarius, who did all of our scouting, to see Kansas State versus Cincinnati because he figured that was going to be the team we would play if if we won our next two games. And of course, we were in the C Sweet 16 in, in San Francisco at the Cow Palace. So we put all of our eggs in one basket. Uh, Oscar Robertson in Cincinnati and uh, <laughs> we uh, Cincinnati was averaging 90 points per game and Oscar was averaging 33 points per game um, and um, we held him to 19 points 14 below his average and we won by eight uh, but I want to remind you that in those days, Oscar Robertson and Jerry West, who played for West Virginia, were forwards. They were the three. And so we had, uh, he always had me stay closer to the basket for rebounding purposes. And, and uh, so the other forward always got the, the job of, of guarding Oscar or Jerry West. And uh, Bob Dalton did a great job holding him 14 below his average and we won by eight. Well, now we've got West Virginia coming up tomorrow. We haven't scouted right. them or the next right. day on Saturday. Uh, the coaches had seen the first half of their game maybe. And uh, all we had was a chalk talk to prepare. And on top of that, Pete Newell, uh, had invited the Straw Hat Band and our cheerleaders to the pregame meal with us. Oh, wow. And the reason he did that was in those days, the band, they had to get to Louisville on their own. And, and uh, I, I remember they slept in the University of Louisville gym. Well, we, we did very well. Going into the start of the fourth quarter, we're up 13 points against West Virginia and then West Virginia put a half court press on us and we managed to hang on and win by one. But the story I'd like to tell because this really tells you something about Pete Newell and Rennie. 
So we're on the airplane on Sunday now, flying back to San Francisco, okay? The right. NCAA championship trophy's on the plane with us, and I, I come walking up the aisle, and Pete and Rennie are excellent and owing on a piece of yellow binder paper. <laughs> and I go, what the heck are you doing? And they, Pete responds, well, they built a new sports arena in Los Angeles. It's going to open, and they're going to have a tournament in December, and we might play West Virginia if we're both lucky enough to get to the final. And you can elite, you can eliminate this if you want, uh, Brett, but yeah. I would give $1,000 to anyone's favorite charity if I could get a copy of that 16-millimeter film of the rematch game. Oh, man. We've now had two months to prepare for Jerry West and West Virginia in the rematch. We had lost three of our four starting fourth four or four forwards and three of our four guards. Uh, but Daryl Imhoff was a year better and so was I. And uh, West Virginia still had, they lost one guard, but they still had uh, Jerry West and the rest of the team. So the final score, West Virginia is averaging 90, 95 points a game and West is averaging about 35. We're both unbeaten going into the game. The final score is Cal 65, West Virginia 45. Oh, my we goodness. Held West Virginia to 45 points less than their average, and West ended up with eight points, one basket wow. and six free throws. And that, that really stresses our defense. And that was, that'll be one of my reasons later on for saying I, I felt the 60 team was better. Uh, I don't know when that question. Yeah, no, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Here it is. You get to the, you get to the finals the following year. Uh, beat beat uh, Cincinnati again in the in the semifinals, which Oscar must have been tired of seeing you guys. And then you you play Ohio State in in the finals. What what yeah, speak, speak to that as far as did you th did you feel the sixty team was was the team that actually lost in the finals was it better than the team that won it or no? Most, all of us on the 60 team felt we were better, even though we had lost <laughs> you know, three guards and three forwards. And uh, the reason I say that is the above rematch with West Virginia and also the rematch with Cincinnati in the final four. Cincinnati felt we had snuck up on them the year before and they couldn't right. wait to, to play us, so they were going to clean our clock. And so since he was averaging about 90 points per game and Oscar Robertson 34. And so we play on Friday night and uh, we hold uh, Oscar to 18, one less than the year before. <laughs> and we win by nine. And the game was supposed to start at nine o'clock. It starts at 9.30. And so we get out of the Cow Palace, which is about 20 minutes to San Francisco to our hotel. And so we're starving. We're walking around looking for something to eat. And we didn't, I'm sure we didn't get to bed till, you know, close to one o'clock. But uh, I also remember waking up as soon as the sun came up. We're in a hotel room and, you know, you're all fired up. But, and our assistant, Rennie Herarius, maintains to this day that if we had a day in between, that we would have given Ohio State a better game. And 
I would con concur. I'm not saying we would have beat them, but I know we could have given them a better game. We were we came out flat for about the first eight or ten minutes, and Ohio State shot 83 percent in the first half, and they 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 beat us pretty well. Uh, wow. I mean, and just to think that that uh, you know you guys had to play uh, two nights in a row. I mean, it, it's. It's it's actually great that they were able to change that rule and, and put a day in between because the the, the intensity of of those games to, to do that in a back to back uh, our, environment that that had to be tough that had to be tough. Our sixty game against Oscar, they had picked up a six nine center by the name of Paul Hogue, who was about two fifty, and he was he was pretty good. It was really a very physical and rough game, and we had some, you know aches and pains that didn't help us <laughs> so that there was a there's a great story in uh in pete Knowles book and, and and i know you can't get in trouble with the ncaa if, if you reveal this at, at this point considering it was about uh what 50 60 years ago 60, but 60, plus. 60 years 61 pete tells the story that you hear it is you guys get to the final four in 60 he wants to he wants to eliminate all distractions. So he tells you guys to sell your comp, your comp tickets. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then I, I guess it goes on to tell the story where, where you guys are getting ready to maybe head out of the hotel to go to the game and, and hear the Cincinnati players are selling their comp tickets right before the game. I mean, was that a standard practice of selling yeah. your, your comp tickets? Since yeah. again, you, can't, you can't get in trouble at this point. <laughs> the statute of limitations is long gone, but uh, that's a true story. And first of all, uh, the ticket, one ticket to the final four and 59 cost $5. <laughs> I've got a copy of one of them, so I know that's correct. And, you know, wow. compared to what they cost nowadays, I had, I think we each got six, I, I you know, the students weren't going to fly to Louisville from uh, Berkeley, so uh, we had tickets. But my mom and two of my high school teammates and one of the teammates' wives came to the game, so I didn't get my 30 bucks. I think I got $10, but $10 <laughs> went a lot farther then than it did nowadays. But Pete had some rules. When you were on the road, there were no phone calls in and out of the room. When they made reservations for the team to stay at the Sealback Hotel in Louisville, it was very explicit that absolutely no calls in or out, no room uh, room service calls or anything like that. And he was very explicit that you sell your tickets by Thursday noon at the very latest. And Al Buck, <laughs> had lived on to high school in New York and I think until the end of uh, his junior year and then he moved to North Hollywood High School and so he had some contacts from back in New York who I'm sure were quite streetwise because I know that Buck and one or two other guys went down like on Wednesday night or something and sold the tickets and got the cash and they came back with a wad of money and we all had our money in our pockets and didn't have to worry and that is true the Cincinnati guys were out there before the game trying to uh, sell their tickets. Incredible incredible well you, you talked about um, some of the 
outstanding defensive performances uh, against West Virginia um, over the course of those two years. What, what, what is it that stood out to you? You guys led the nation in defense for, for both of those years. What, what, what stood out to you as far as what, what made your defense so, so elite? Well, I, I'm going to ad lib a little bit too here because the, the Eastern papers and schools back there figured we were going to hang on to the ball and, you know, there was no time clock so you could hold the ball for two minutes if you wanted to. We didn't do that. We were not ball control in that sense. We took more field goal attempts, maybe 10 or 12 more than Cincinnati and West Virginia in our game. Wow. But there were things that we did that we kept close track of. One was rebounds. Another was turnovers. And I think Cincinnati might have turned the ball over 14 or 15 times, and we turned it over four or something like that. And so Pete always felt that every turnover was worth two points. There wasn't a three-point shot in those days. So uh, we really stressed uh, forcing the opponent to turn the ball over. We ran a con continuity offense, which got all five players moving instead of the high dribble rub and two guys and the others standing in a corner like a lot of teams do nowadays. We had a triangle on the offensive boards. We contested the outlet pass. Okay, and this, uh, we've worked on drills on this in practice. And so it, it, elim it eliminated a lot of the fast break baskets in both 59 and 60 against Cincinnati and and 59 and 59 against West Virginia, they got virtually, I would say, fewer than five, maybe none fast break uh, points. But our basket, our defense also was based on conditioning. We used to have a cross country course up above the football stadium in Berkeley, but Pete had Don Bowden, who was the first American to run the mile under four minutes. He would be our pacer. And we'd start out down on the stadium floor and have to run about a mile. Then we got to about a 250-yard, 45-degree incline hill that we ran up. And then we got to the cross-country course and ran the cross-country course. We also did a hands-up drill, which started out about six minutes with the left hand up, then six with the right, and actually got to 20 minutes with your left hand up and, and then switched to your right hand up. And it was all about moving your feet, sliding your feet. Uh, but we also forced the right-handed players to go left. Uh, spacing, we, de we denied all point to wing passes. And so we forced you further away from the basket. We did rebounding drills 20 to 30 minutes for six, six weeks in preseason blockout. And, and Pete's philosophy was you play like you practice. So when we're doing our rebounding drills, if you're the 15th man and I'm the first, you're going to work as hard as you can to beat me on the blockout drill, which of course gets our offensive rebounding uh, working better also right how, how many how many players do you think nowadays could do the do the hands up drill for 20 consecutive minutes well you know <laughs> what pete said he doubted it but one of my retirement jobs in 1999 to 
2002 or three or something like that was at Cal State Monterey Bay, which at the time was NAIA Division Two, and I did it with them, and and the guys they did it, and we we had no scholarships, uh, we didn't have anybody who was going to go to the NBA and although a lot of them thought they would, <laughs> but right. uh, they could do it. And we, we did it at times, uh, Ann Myers and, and Pete, and I started a tall woman camp in 2001 at Cal State Monterey Bay. And we used to do them about four or five minutes. And uh, to give them the idea of playing defense, you get to move your feet. It's it's not about your hands on defense. It's about, it's about cutting off lanes and path, pass to the basket. So right. I think kids can do it still today. It, just be, it would be interesting how enthusiastic they would be at doing it. But, uh, but before we move on kind of from the Cal days, can, can you just talk a little bit about – Again, what you kind of took most from Pete, right? As we move on from our college years, a lot of times we, we realize things after the fact about how how a person impacted our life. I mean, how how do you how did you kind of move on from Cal, head into your life, and and what was the impact that Pete had the most kind of from your Cal days? Obviously, you continued your friendship with him after but just looking back what, what, what would you say you took most from playing for Pete Noah Cal? Pete taught the game of basketball throughout his life and he taught the game of life through basketball. He not only taught us how to win gracefully and to accept defeat but also how to do our best in all situations. He taught us values, character, ethics, leadership and morals. He taught us fundamentals and hard works hard work, and that there are no shortcuts. Perhaps the most important concept Pete taught was that teamwork was more important than individual accomplishments. His philosophies are more relevant today than ever before. That's great. No, you're right. And that, that's, uh, that's why it's great just to be able to talk to you and, and guys that, that were around him. You know, obviously people you know, saw him, a lot of people think Pete Noel, the big man camp, but he, here it is, you had the opportunity to actually play for him and, and, and learn all the valuable things that, that you did. That, that, that's awesome. Well, how, you know, moving, moving on kind of to the big man camp, you know, we know the stories of how it started with, with Kermit Washington and Kiki Vandaway. What, what were your kind of first reflections or your first recollections on, on the big man camp? Well, when he started the camp with uh, Kiki and Kermit, uh, and then they, it expanded to about eight or 10 guys the next year. Ned Aberbuck, my teammate, used to go down and he, he would pass for him and work the camp with him. I was still a, a high school principal in alternative education program, and I was also the summer school principal. So I only had two weeks off, and I'd use those two weeks to go up and work the Squaw Valley Warriors basketball camp uh, with Al Adels and Bill Smith and Jamal Wilkes and Rick Barry and all those guys coming up and we were teaching or I was teaching a lot of Pete stuff but I only had those two weeks off in the summer so it never coincided but 
uh, one summer, I think Kermit Washington got an assistant coach's job at Stanford, and Paul Schramka, by coincidence, was visiting some of his University of San Francisco teammates, and he was the guy who sent me out here. And the camp was in Palo Alto, where Claudia and I now live, and so I said, Paul, let's go over and watch the big man camp. So we went over, and I immediately zeroed in on the basket where James Worthy and Sam Perkins and some other big <laughs> names, those guys were both Lakers, were working. And Paul and I are sitting there, and, you know, I'm off the side of the court, and Worthy or Perkins or one of the other NBA bigs would make a move. And I'd say to Shramka, he should have used the crossover there. The guy was taking away the drive to the middle, and Pete had come running down because he was watching all six baskets, but he wouldn't miss a thing. He'd come down and say, Sam, you should have used the crossover. He was taking away the middle. <laughs> and this happened with different moves about two or three times, and Strampka's looking at me. He said, you should be working this camp. How do you know all that before Pete even says it? I said, Paul, I played for from the last two years he coached, okay, that stuff is ingrained forever. I'm right. never going to forget that. And so eventually I got to the point where I retired, and then I joined him in the big man camps in Hawaii, which, of course, was when I met you on the plane reading his book. And yeah, yeah. couldn't resist stopping to talk to you. <laughs> in those days, uh, I remember very vividly, you know, uh, all the NBA bigs and greats uh, coming to the camp, and then, and then also the college. Uh, you know, Pete had connections with Cleveland and Milwaukee and the Lakers and uh, Houston and, you know, just about all over the league, uh, having uh, worked first with the San Diego Rockets before they moved to Houston and, and uh, consulting with Milwaukee and Cleveland and working for the Lakers and then with Franklin Newley. But I also remember very vividly Villanova sending at least two or three, sometimes four bigs to the camp where you were an assistant yep. coach where we first met. So, yep. uh, and then of course, when Pete didn't want to, or couldn't travel anymore to Hawaii, uh, he moved the camp to Vegas. So, to Vegas. So, there were some great memories, and uh, he always put me on a basket uh, with one basketball, and he just said, all I want you to do is when, the, the, when I send someone down to your basket, it means they're having trouble with the step back or the hesitation or, you know, a crossover or something. I want you to take that guy and give him eight or ten quick reps so he can pick up the idea without being embarrassed in front of all his colleagues and they're all standing around while this guy can't get the move so that was my job and I when he'd send someone down at first of all I'd have a, a somewhat bruised ego that I'd have to nurture and I'd tell him well, it took me six weeks to learn this move, but it's about repetitions, and it's not about <laughs> embarrassing you. I'm going to give you 10 or 12 reps, and I'm going to send you back to the group. And so that was that was my my role in in almost all of the big man camps and and the tall woman camps that uh, if someone couldn't get the drill and needed a bunch of reps, that 
he would let me do that. And I'd tell him, of course, hey, it took me six weeks. I'm going to do this with you in six minutes. So don't, you know, <laughs> don't stress. Don't worry about it. Uh, that's awesome. Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, we could, we could talk forever. Uh, you know, Pete impacted so many lives. And, and, uh, as you said earlier, it's, it wasn't just about basketball, you know, a, a lot of it was just, uh, how you carry yourself and, and, you know, a lot of life skill things. I, I, I'd love to just ask you one more question here as we, as we, as we wrap up and, um, you know, just, just your thought, you, you played for him, you, you, you had a, a friendship with him for, for your life. Um, what, what do you think, what do you think, what is the most important thing that we need to remember and pass on to, to the, you know, the next generation of players and coaches um, about Pete? What, what, what would you say? Well, I think without a doubt, you know, his footwork and his uh, drills and the like, but Pete always stressed to us, you play like you practice. And we, our practices were sometimes tougher than our games because we call the, uh, the 11 through 20 guys, the cannon fodder five, because they got to play defense against us. And he, he, he let them scrimmage the eight guys who played in the game. Pete always start, played three forwards, three guards and two centers. Um, and some of our practices were harder than our games, but talk on defense, his footwork and fundamentals, listen. At a timeout many times, he knew what he wanted to tell us and there was only one person talking. But he would sometimes ask a forward or a guard or a center, what do you see? And then uh, how to play without the ball only practice game situations live one-on-one -on -one breakdown two-on-two three-on-three he never taught any uh drills like dribbling two basketballs at the same time dribbling behind <laughs> your back chairs right. cones on the court and the like but stress footwork especially on defense don't reach for the ball on defense slide your free feet offensively read the defense and use a counter move go 100 percent and practice because you make you and your teammates better uh, have fun while playing and practicing and then make sure that you keep track of your grades get good grades give your best in the classroom as well and that was one thing I may have said this already, but every one of us who played for Pete in the eight years that he was at Cal, we all graduated. We got our degree. Some of us took a little longer than others. <laughs> and one last thing. Yeah. And you can leave this out, but this is always one of my fun stories. When I talked to players live about the Marquette coach, I go back after we win the NCAA championship and my best friend is getting married and I'm going to be the best man in his wedding. And we go to a Braves game. They were in Milwaukee. Aaron was just starting out. And lo and behold, you know, you could bring your own beer in in those days to the stadium. <laughs> so we had our beer. And lo and behold, a scout from Marquette sitting in front of me. So I give it the tap on the shoulder. And, hey, oh, man. remember me? 
And then I, I wanted to show you my NSA watch. Remember what you told me? I never played forward on a major college team. And my my teammate, my buddy's biting his hand. And afterward, he said, Jesus, SOB. I said, the hell with hey. it. I wanted to let him know it's subjective. He made a mistake. Hey, you that that would have been too hard to pass up. That that I, I could I couldn't, you know. But uh, no, Bill, I want to thank you for uh, for taking time. Again, we this can oh. go on for hours. There's so many great uh, memories about Pete, and and just appreciate you taking time to share how how he impacted your life. Thank you so much.